welcome. Thank you for being part of our uh, Wednesday night group. For those of you uh, who have followed this series uh, in its duration, we've covered some really extraordinary topics, uh, relevant topics to our changing sets of values as we come to terms with the environment. Uh, and tonight we are in a really great set of hands, and I use that word uh, in both its literal and metaphorical sense because it's to do with the hand and also the heart uh, that we're going to concentrate our minds and thoughts um, with David Goodhart this evening. Um, because that element of our way of thinking um, has seen a profound shift. And I think it's right to say that David Goodhart's book has led that. And it's not wrong of me to say also that he's consistently led that refractory way of thinking. I described him earlier as a contrarian and revolution. Said, oh, no, no, I'm not. It's just a different way, left to center thinking. And so we're going to explore some of the politics, um, but also some of the principles uh, with David, who is the founding editor of Prospect magazine, uh, which remains one of the most distinctive voices today, I'm just pleased to say. Um, and he's also currently head of the Democracy Union, sorry, at Think Tank Policy Exchange. Um, so, um, David, so much of what we're going to talk about is covered in a really groundbreaking book uh, that you've written. But tell me, what exactly inspired you to head off in that direction to revalue? And I wondered for those of us who perhaps haven't read your book, whether you could surmise the basis of the thinking that went into it. Uh, yeah, uh, I would happily do that. Um, and thank you for inviting me. The meaning uh, of my, my thesis is really contained in the title of the book, uh, Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century, which I wrote in 2019 before the pandemic, um, although I think it does have uh, a bearing on the pandemic, or, or I think its thesis uh, is in some ways underlined by uh, the pandemic. We can perhaps come on to that a bit later. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to, just to sort of unpack the argument in the book a bit. So, I mean, the, the argument, as I say, it's a relatively straightforward one in some ways. It's contained in the title, and the argument is that uh, too much, we've allocated too much reward and prestige, particularly in recent decades, the last three or four decades, to just one cluster of human aptitudes, the cluster of human aptitudes related to, to head, um, so cognitive, uh, academic type intelligence, in exam passing intelligence, as opposed to the many other forms of intelligence and skill associated with hand and craft and, and heart, meaning um, caring and emotional labor, emotional intelligence. Um, and um, that has been driven forward by the huge expansion of um, higher education, um, the dominance of, I and mean, this is where the book sort of overlaps a little bit with my previous one, the dominance of a um, what we might call a kind of anywhere class who are uh, the, the kind of winners of the cognitive meritocracy, people who have the, the credentialized status of uh, people who have done well at school, who have gone to more or less good universities and have more or less successful professional careers, um, tend to have a certain worldview, tend to place a great store on, um, on, on cognitive abilities um, and it's entirely rational that people should want their children to go to university um, it's entirely rational for individuals it's not entirely rational for society as a whole like like many things um, and um, I mean you could say this is this is very ancient in some ways I mean the 
the extra status attached to um, to the spirit, as it were, to, to kind of to, to intellectual pursuit. You could see you know, it's as old as Plato. I mean, you might say it's reinforced by Christianity with its um, with its sort of suspicion of the body, um, the embodied. Uh, the, embodied, the embodied is is the center of corruption, and, and thought is related to purity in some way. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's only in the last thirty or forty years we've actually had a kind of mass, sort of cognitively trained class of 25, 30, 35% of the population. Um, and, and I think the, the problem is not just the focus on the kind of um, skills or indeed the over-rewarding of the, the graduate class. Uh, it's the, the very notion of what it is to live a successful life, I think, has kind of narrowed um, on to, as I say, that that kind of climbing that that academic ladder at school and then um, moving into a cognitive professional job. Yes, I mean, you know, we've it's we've been one of the sort of most established um, sort of laws of, of modern labour market economics that uh, you know the return to qualifications um, has um, at least until recently. Um, been a huge incentive for people to and 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 you know and to be fair, there was a very powerful logic um, for not only for individuals but for society as a whole. Say you know back in the sixties, seventies, eighties, to expand higher education and to expand cognitive um, professional training, uh, because we were seeing the emergence, or we, we saw the decline of manufacturing industry, we saw the emergence of more um, sort of cognitive-based jobs, um, the, the, the so-called knowledge economy that we started talking about in the 1980s, uh, and the creation of, I mean, we forget sometimes the wealth, the expansion of the welfare state, um, it, you know, particularly, we have, we have very rapid expansion of the welfare state in the 60s and 70s, and the welfare state creates lots of cognitive professional jobs. I mean, if you think of all of the um, medical professionals, not just doctors, but all the professions related to medicine with the, you know, with the expansion of the NHS, um, you have you know, obviously uh, more teachers more, uh, with the expansion of higher education, you have more, uh, more university professors, yeah. more university academics. My point is that the logic, that logic has come to an end. Um, and, um, and we have, you know, we've reached what I call peak head. And, you know, when I started writing the book, I, uh, I thought that there was something slightly kind of idealistic, even a bit, even a bit new agey um, about the idea of kind of head, hand, heart. It actually turns out head, hand, heart, I discovered um, after I'd finished writing the book, is the, is the motto of Beedale's school um, you know, the very progressive private school. Um, and, um, but, but the more I kind of researched, I mean, this is a journalistic book, this is not a scholarly work. So I was kind of researching as I went along. And the more I was, um, you know, reading, um, um, you know, prognoses about the, um, about the future of work, the more it became clear to me that this is, this is not an idealistic thing at all. This is going to happen. 
kind yeah. of what we like and wrong. I mean, the, the way it happens and how quickly it happens, we are going to have to shift status away from head to hand and heart because we have massively overproduced low, you know, middle and low level cognitive jobs um, that uh, for which there is no longer any demand. It turns out the knowledge economy doesn't actually need that many knowledge workers now. And this is even before AI has really um, done its work. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can see the signs everywhere. I mean, you can see the signs in the reduction in the so-called graduate income premium. Uh, graduate income premium remains quite high for people who go to kind of Oxford and Cambridge and elite universities, but for the average, particularly male um, graduate, it's, it's disappearing to almost nothing. Um, and you also have, I think something like 35% of graduates are not in graduate employment even five to 10 years after graduating. And that's with a very elastic definition of a graduate job that the, that the people who draw up these statistics use. Um, you know, it, it, includes, it includes sort of per, you know, a personal trainer and things like that are classified as graduate jobs. Um, so you have, so, so there's a, and, and this is in parenthesis, this is creating a real political crisis too. I think the crisis of disappointed expectations of people, you know, many people from not particularly privileged backgrounds, often the first in their family to go to university who are expecting all of the sort of status and prestige and indeed relatively high income that a, that a graduate job is meant to um, confer upon you. And they're finding that that isn't happening at all. Um, and some of, them get, some of them are getting quite angry about it. You know, they're, they're ending up doing a kind of 22 grand a year back office admin job somewhere. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, there's a sort of crisis. I mean, and I think that's, this may have had something to do with the, uh, you know, the, the kind of often rather, rather well-educated sounding young people in say the Bernie Sanders movement in America or the Corbyn movement here, possibly even to some extent the BLM movement, you know, disappointed young, black students uh, who have done what they um, they think they've been encouraged to and then find that they're not um, joining the sort of the comfortable professional middle class. Um, and they have the, um, they, they can explain that in terms of race, which, which may sometimes be part of the story, but I think it's mainly to do with the, um, the lack of demand now for, for cognitively trained people. Um, Meanwhile, of course, there's a huge demand for low-skilled jobs, uh, you know, delivery jobs and so on. Um, uh, and also we've got a crisis of the so-called missing middle skills, um, the kind of people that, that a generation ago would have done HNDs or HNCs. Hundreds of thousands of people used to do HNDs and HNCs. It's now down to about kind of 10 or 15,000 people a year um, because all those all the people that would have been doing those have now gone to university oh, and it's true and you know some of them are doing um, um, kind of technical related HMD HNC style um, qualifications but in degree form the government hasn't been I mean having I think you know over promoted higher education I mean Tony Blair made his famous speech in 1999 saying that 50 percent of school leavers should go to university I think it was a it was an incredibly emotionally unintelligent speech apart from anything else. I mean, no thought seems to have been given to what I call in my book, the, the 1550 problem. I mean, back in the 1970s, 1980s, you know, 15% of people in your 
class or school or town, um, go to university, pick people in your cohort, go to university and you don't, well, it doesn't really matter, you go and work in a local factory or office and life goes on. Uh, if 50% are going to university and you're not, then it's a completely different ballgame psychologically and you may well feel um, that you've, you know, that you've kind of lost the kind of game of life already. It was a kind of mass case of what the kids called FOMO, you know, fear right. of missing out. Yeah. Um, and um, so and of course, and, and of course, you also had the economics of it. That, that uh, no, and not just the economics; it's the psychology of it. It's the feeling that non-academic, non-cognitive functions are somehow contributing less. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though the opposite is actually often the case, uh, that somehow you know all this sort of false prestige that attaches to. Um, to all but the very highest. I mean, this is, you know, one of the points about the pandemic that one might say is, but, you know, look, isn't this a sort of wonderful example of how our brilliant, highly cognitively trained scientists, you know, collaborating together in teams across national borders have, have produced in absolutely um, breakneck speed this, these extraordinary, wonderful vaccines to save us from, from COVID. And that's all true. But, I mean, the obvious answer to that is, you do not need to send 40% of school leavers or 50% of school leavers to university um, to achieve that. I mean, the, the number of people who are actually producing new knowledge of any, you know, whether it's in medicine, med, sort of scientific medical areas, technical areas, even in the humanities, the people that produce new knowledge are a tiny percentage of, of the people that go to university. I mean, you know, just think of, just think of how inventive this country was, you know, well, I mean, for sort of from the Industrial Revolution up to the 1950s, when virtually nobody went to university. Part of the sort of peak head problem, I mean, you know, they're sort of overproducing the cognitive trained kids, um, un- underproducing the missing middle skills, the old HND, HNC type skills. And above all, you know, we have this huge recruitment crisis in the care sector. Um, um, now, now um, you know, we have even before the pandemic, we had a what, 50,000 shortfall of NHS nurses, um, uh, you know, a, a bigger shortfall of people um, working in care homes. Um, now, I mean, and, and one reason for that is a kind of benign one, which is to do with the fact that women who overwhelmingly still do these jobs, 89% of NHS nurses are women about 85% of people who work in the care sector, um, 85% of primary school teachers. Um, I mean, most, jo- you know, and even more people working in um, nurseries and um, childcare centres, um, you know, works is, you know, between sort of 85 and 90% in most of these areas are women. And women have far more opportunities now than they did even a couple of generations ago. Um, you know, more women than men now graduate from university. Women are dominating many of the higher professions, um, and so the the the, the kind of um, you know the, there was a sort of reserve army of of female labour that that the care system was able to tap until a couple of generations ago. Now women have more more options, and many of them are understandably enough. Um, choosing not to go into quite low status, low paid care work in care homes. Um, and you can't really blame them. Um, 
but I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, not just because of the pandemic, but I mean, I, th th this is what I mean about, this is going to have to change. I mean, we're not going to allow, you know, old people to just to, to be in homes that don't have any carers in them. Um, so we are going to have to pay people more to do those jobs. We're going to have to incentivize people to do them, not just through higher pay, I think, but through through greater status and prestige. Now, these things are not in the gift of politicians. It, it's sort of in the gift of all of us collectively as a society to... Um, Absolutely. And, and where do you see your analysis in there? Because it, it feels, I think, rightly because of the attitude you have, very, if you like, top down. So you, you, it's a very analytical view. I think you're, you're right. And, and, and that point is worth holding for a moment. Um, because, uh, and I think you, you use a phrase like that and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to have to pay, we have to incentivize people more. And I think, well, okay, that is right, but that's a sort of directionist policy. That's someone's ability to steer government, I suppose. Um, I wonder if we might, if we got down on the ground, so to speak, and thought about from a hearts and minds point of view, well, you know, you know, what are those values that, we, that we're really shifting towards? Um, you know, why are, you know, how could we make those elements more attractive? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, we need a more expansive definition of skill and merit. Um, you know, I mean, if, if one wants to use the term meritocracy, I mean, I think um, obviously we have, to the extent we do have a meritocracy, it's a very flawed one. I mean, both socially, obviously, some people have have a much better starting position than other people. Um, but my, my critique of meritocracy is, is not, uh, I mean, I think meritocracies are always going to be flawed, by the way, because um, um, you know, parents, will, parents will always be able to pass on their advantages to their children to a, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, I mean, there's no way that that can or should be stopped, really. Um, and that means that that the, the meritocracies will always be flawed, which is not to say that you shouldn't you know, do your best to, to create you know, a decent level of equality of opportunity. But my, my argument is much more with the kind of cognitive prefix. The problem isn't, is, is, is the cognitive, I and mean, we place just too much stress on, as I was saying earlier, on kind of one form of human aptitude, one form of human ability. And that actually, you know, I, I mean, we, you can, you can, part you can help to solve in some ways the um the the kind of social um problem with with meritocracy the fact that it, it's all it's always going to be limited given parents abilities to hand on their their advantages to their children um partly just by by spreading what it is that we value <laughs> by if you have a more expansive definition of it then then you know then then there can be more opportunity to succeed or you know the, the definition of what a successful life is can become can become sort of more more generous um i mean there is a, there is a problem here though um which is to do with i mean sorry but coming back to the whole care question i mean it, there's a really sort of interesting problem which is that i mean what one of the reasons why the cognitive meritocracy has swept all before it and cognitive aptitudes have become uh, have become so, so so sort of dominant in our system is that they at least seem to be so easy to measure you know everybody i don't know everybody reads the same biology textbook and they then do the biology exam 
and you, and some people do better than others. You have a kind of hierarchy emerging from from the exam. Um, some people are better at biology than other people. You know, your and your biologists are chosen from the people who do well in the biology exam. Um, um, and it's it's so so it's, it seems to be easy to measure, and in certain respects easy to reward, although that's perhaps slightly more complicated. But when you think about care, I mean, it's very, very difficult. It's, it's very much more elusive. It's a very difficult thing. I mean, you just think of a, a nurse coming off a, off a, I don't know, 10 hour or eight hour, whatever length of shift they do in, in a hospital, coming off a 10 hour shift in a geriatric ward. So um, she, it's, you know, almost certain to be a she is, is going to have spent, you know, eight hours making the lives of, I don't know, what, 20 or 30 elderly people a little bit less miserable. How do you measure that? I mean, okay, there, you have kind of patient surveys in hospitals and things, but it's very difficult to measure the outcome of care. But fortunately, I mean, it's exactly those kinds of things that, that robots and algorithms cannot replace. I mean, you know, this is another reason why I'm quite optimistic in some ways about the shifting of, of, of status and reward for that matter. I mean, you're already, you've already seen that, you know, I mean, lots of sort of, you know, skilled artisans, um, skilled workers, um, kind of what the Germans call the sort of Handwerk, um, are earning, uh, you know, far more than, you know, than, than lots of people coming out of university. And, and people are gonna, people are cottoning onto that, I think. I mean, this, the, those signals I was talking about earlier. I mean, because the truth is, the I mean, a, 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 another little indicator of, of of sort of peak head, as it were, is that uh, I'm, I was looking at the figures of membership. The top the top two social classes essentially, it's the professional and managerial class, higher and lower. And there's a sort of standard seven. I think it's a sort of seven, maybe eight, class schema. Um, that, that are kind of used by the ONS and, and other bodies. And I was looking at the proportion of people in the top two social classes, so, so manager and professional class, um, higher and lower, back in the year 2000 was 35%, perhaps surprisingly high. Um, and it had basically hasn't shifted, it barely shifted at all in the last 20 years. The figure now I think is 37%, so it's increased a tiny bit. Um, but like I say, so that there, there just isn't the demand for those jobs, and there is a massive demand still for um, for well, I mean, many of the kinds of things that you were just talking about. I mean, you know, there are you know great well needs for people to you know have creative and expressive jobs. Yeah, and and I think the signals are are quite promising, and I think you get you know a lot of and actually you know a, a lot of these things. Uh, are often, as it were, trialed first amongst the most privileged people in our society. I mean, the kind of uh, uh, you know, affluent families can afford to take risks. And I think you are, you're seeing it in a lot of kind of you know, upper middle class families. Um, you know, at least one of the kids, you know, one of the kids might go to university, the other kid might think, well, actually, that's really not for me. And they go and become an artisanal cheesemaker in Hackney um, or whatever. <laughs> Um, and, I, and I think that's I think that's a really good thing. I, we, we, I mean, we, oh, we don't want too many artisanal cheesemakers. I, I mean, I, I think the underlying forces are sort of pushing us in this direction anyway, in terms of the kind of reallocation of reward and prestige. But it could do with some 
sort of nudging from from policy and i think um i think some of those things are just um sort of obvious you know things like kind of um higher a higher living wage you know investing properly in, in care homes um uh, i mean sorting out the missing middle problem in skills and actually to be fair the government has just come out with a with a white paper on further education i mean sort of switching mm. the, the government is very much um interested in sort of switching um the focus away from he to fe from higher education to further education um we've had that we had the auger review uh, that some of you may have heard of a, a couple of years ago uh there was a the sainsbury review on the missing middle stuff we've got t levels we've got an apprenticeship levy so stuff has been happening um i mean there is a kind of recognition that we kind of over um, we overdid it in in higher education having said that when more kids than ever before are probably going to university um this year but, but i mean that's partly a temporary pandemic thing because because of the uncertainties in the labor market um but i mean i think what one of the um of course you know one of the reasons people do that is not just because of the the the, the signals that have been set at least in the past it's also that um um well, I mean, the system is on sort of automatic pilot, so we're still churning out far too many um, graduates for, for you know, without without particularly relevant skills. And, and, and government, you know, some uh, large chunks of government policy have been based around the, uh, the idea that we will have an ever expanding professional, sort of cognitive professional middle class. But as I just said, it isn't expanding. Um, you know, so a lot of social mobility policy is based on that assumption. You know, uh, education policy. You know, even parts of economic policy but is it but it's just not going to happen um but and what they should be but but one of the reasons why people are still a, a, a sort of attached to the same behaviors as a decade or two ago is that nearly 40 percent of jobs now in in britain are graduate only and that is an i, I mean I, that should be stopped and that that is i mean you, you know you cannot be a nurse you know you have to be uh, you have to do a an undergraduate course to become a nurse now uh, they were they were threatening to introduce it in the police force believe it or not i think i think that may have been pushed back on now i mean there's nothing wrong with being a graduate nurse i mean and there is some evidence that the more graduate nurses you have in hospital the better outcomes you have i mean so my point is not so much um that yeah. you know that that being a graduate isn't in, in inherently destructive in some way obviously not of, often the opposite but there have to be other routes into nursing. So there are lots of people who would be extremely good nurses, um, and and you know obviously and have to get sufficiently well qualified. But who at the age of eighteen were kind of weren't paying very much attention to exams and didn't do terribly well in their A levels and didn't go to university. Then we must have other routes into these that what one might call the kind of everyday professions. Now, there must be other routes in as well as the sort of conventional graduate route um so that's that's what i mean when i say that the, the government should should sort of stop graduate only but of course all the all the professional bodies uh, are in kind of are in uh, collaboration with the universities to kind of to 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 create to to, to make to make it as much graduate only as possible there's too much incentive for them to do you know to 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 do the graduate courses. I mean, I'm saying that they um, that that 
yeah. we, need to, we need to keep non-graduate routes into these uh, everyday professions. Um, but but I also think I mean I know the thing that you're you're more interested in uh, uh, sort of what happens at secondary school, and I do think um, we have had far too much focus on academic achievement alone. Um, I mean, I'm broadly a fan of the Michael Gove reforms of the first part of the last decade. Um, I think he has reintroduced right. some rigor into the system, but it, it focused almost exclusively on academic subjects and tended to be rather, it tended to be rather dismissive of, um, you know, teaching uh, arts and drama and, um, and music and, and, and more and creative subjects more generally. Um, and I think that's, uh, I, I, th those were seen as soft subjects and, and partly with some justice because many of those subjects have been very poorly taught in our schools and they can be taught with as much rigor as you teach, you know, science. Yeah. But I mean, on, you know, on the ground, I mean, I, I know um, uh, there's a woman who some of you may have heard of, she's sort of famous for being strictest headmistress in Britain, Catherine Birbal Singh, um, who runs this amazing school, free school up in Wembley, Michaela. Yeah. Um, and I mean, she's incredibly, I mean, you know, this is kind of, um, this is sort of Govian um, on steroids. I mean, it, uh, she's incredibly um, rigorous, uh, knowledge-based curriculum, really, really disciplinarian. Um, um, but she she also has the most incredible art department. I mean, if you go on the school's website, you can see their um, you see see the res the results of their of their drawing and painting. I mean, it's uh, it's quite amazing. You know, sort of 11, 12 year olds. Um, and, and that's because she held out for um, someone who could actually teach drawing. I mean, there aren't very many people who can. So I was a journalist in Germany um, and I sort of kept in touch with it. I mean, I, I talk about Germany a bit in the book. And yeah, it, it is true that they, I mean, the Germanic country, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, um, and the Scandinavian countries have kind of retained higher status for um, for the kind of handwerk jobs. Um, uh, although they're sort of making the same mistake as us. I mean, I think some of these trends are more developed in the United States than here. Um, but the Germans uh, have made, they used to have a university system where students went on being students for years and years and years. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd meet taxi drivers in, in Berlin, you know, who were kind of age 32 and still finishing their philosophy degree and reading Kant or whatever. Um, and they, they kind of reformed that system. Um, so it's much more like us. They do a sort of three or four year kind of bachelor degree. Uh, and, um, and so, and they are, they're in danger, I think, of losing the great advantage of their, uh, their apprenticeship system. Um, I mean, they sort of nearly 50% of school leaves in Germany still go into a kind of, into a traditional apprenticeship. And that does have a, and it's as if everything, you know, that everything is on a similar kind of level. I mean, there are quite a few members of Angela Merkel's cabinet who did apprenticeships. In fact, the, the current German health minister, a man called Jens Spahn, 
he he did a, a he did a, a bank Kaufman apprenticeship, but then he went on to do a degree later on, and then mm -hmm. I think possibly even a further degree. I mean, he's a very clever guy, mm -hmm. but um, there isn't that yeah there isn't the same status gulf. Um, it's the kind of um, what's the Gilbert Ryle just you know knowing knowing how and knowing that distinction. Um, we we tend to prioritize knowing that um whereas i think in germany knowing how and knowing that i mean pr practical or what one might call sort of want of a better term practical intelligence and sort of academic intelligence have more respect for each other i think in the germans just and actually as somebody pointed out one of the reasons for that is that they have a bigger manufacturing sector um when you where you have a big manufacturing sector the the two forms of intelligence are brought together and have a and 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 and, and that generates a kind of mutual respect because yeah. we because our manufacturing sector is now so small you don't get you know the kind of academic intelligence of the i don't know the designer or the scientist meeting the kind of practical intelligence of the um I mean, the lathe operator or whatever it is. I mean, um, or, or the um, the technician. Yeah. David, thank you so much.